0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. The theme of this episode of the Nordic Asia podcast is the Nordic Asia podcast. Our podcast was born during the pandemic as a collaborative effort between a few Nordic research institutions to keep alive the quite vibrant Nordic research community on Asia at a time when it was impossible for us to meet in person. Now, more than two years, and I think more than 100 episodes later, we're still around and are, dare we say, doing better than ever. So in this episode, we look back at the birth and evolution of the Nordic Asia podcast from a relatively small and easily overlooked series hosted on the pages of the Nordic Institute for Asian Studies to a considerably more prominent place among the more popular channels on New Books Network. But rest assured that this is not going to be only a self-congratulatory or narcissistic episode. We also want to more broadly discuss the potential of podcasts as a means of disseminating research-based insights into Asian politics, cultures, and environments, as a pedagogical tool within Asia Studies, and also as a means of building academic community. With me today are three people whose voices will be quite familiar to listeners of our series. We have with us Duncan McCargo, the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and also a professor of political science in Copenhagen. And the host, I think, of roughly 30 episodes of the podcast so far. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you. With us also is Julie Yu Wen Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at the Department of Cultures at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Helsinki, and also the host of quite a few episodes. Welcome, Julie. Hello. And last but not least, Ote Luova, University lecturer at the Center for East Asian Studies in Turku, and also the person who came up with the idea of a Nordic Asia podcast and who hosted some of the early episodes too. Welcome, Uti.
2: Thanks, Kenneth.
1: Now, Uti, let me start with you. I mean, this was actually your brainchild. How did this idea of a Nordic Asia podcast come into being in the first place?
2: Um, First, thanks, Kenneth, for taking the initiative to host this episode. This is a really great idea. And as to the beginning of this uh, series, so in fact, we can thank my two daughters for this idea, They are good at keeping me abreast of new, interesting and cool things. And they are also active listeners of podcasts of all types. And then I got curious whether there would be something interesting for me as well. And in fact, there were lots of cool stuff about Asia, for example, the Sydney podcast series and so forth. So then I thought that this is maybe something that we could do also at our center to share the fruits of our work with a broader audience. So first we launched a Finnish language podcast on Asian studies at our center for Finnish audience. And then after we met with Duncan, I asked him if Nias could act as a platform for a Nordic podcast series on Asia.
1: And then, Duncan, this podcast idea landed up in your lap, so to speak, at Nias.
0: Yeah, because we had obviously, as soon as the lockdown hit, started wondering what it was that we could continue doing to mobilize the, the NNC network and all the people working on Asian studies around the Nordic region. And, you know, Audi came up with this idea and uh, I'd never really thought about doing a podcast before, but I had, a, you know, at one time wanted to be a BBC World Service radio producer. And I saw this was an opportunity for me to pursue my long lost dream of being not an academic, but a journalist. I think many of us have this feeling that we're doing all kinds of work, which we ourselves think is incredibly interesting, but that not enough people are learning about. So the idea of taking the academic research and expertise about Asia in the Nordic region First of all, a great opportunity to link together and collaborate with people in other institutions and other Nordic countries and showcase all the work they were doing, and the chance to reach a bigger audience than those who would read our academic books and articles. So this just seemed like a great idea. One of the first things we had to do was the jingle, which started with uh, Outie's nephew's electronic music. And we also had a bit of cello and a bit of flute. And there's a little, I'm not sure if it's Tibetan, but some sort of Northern Chinese bell, gong thing that sounds. And we actually spent about a day making those little jingles at the beginning and end of the podcast that you hear every time. And that was an investment of effort that helped us to get our heads around the idea. But I have to say, at that point, we still didn't quite know exactly what it was that we were doing. Uh, the jingle sort of preceded a thorough notion of how one would do a podcast in reality.
1: And then the first actual episode came out quite shortly after you began discussing this idea. I think it was in April 2020, which was only a month into the what we may call the great Nordic lockdown, where most of the Nordic countries shut down completely. This first episode was with Sabine Burkhardt from the University of Turku, on the South Korea elections. So this was the very first beginning. But Duncan, quite a lot has happened to the podcast series since this first episode, no?
0: It has, yeah. And I remember that one very well. I was sort of pacing around the living room because I was at home talking on my headset and, um, and having a really interesting conversation with Sabina about the South Korean elections. And, and it was great that that was a direct collaboration between NIRS and Turku, which is kind of where we started from the very first episode. But also it has to be said that I didn't, I don't think any of us did have a very clear idea how the podcasts should be framed and constructed. We had some sort of initial welcoming words, but the kind of script that we've developed since and the format that we've developed since wasn't really there. And it's only over time that we've come to hone in on a particular formula, which really emphasizes the length We try to keep all the podcasts 25 to 30 minutes. There are odd ones that slightly go over that. And we try to make sure that we have a lively, natural-sounding conversation that doesn't sound too academic because we're trying to get the academics to take their academic hats off and talk to us, as you say, with sort of a radio voice with a, a little bit of informality coupled with a considerable sense of their expertise. So one of the things that we focused on very early on was... Getting the length right and also the editing, because a lot of podcasts are hard to listen to. They're not that well edited. You have a lot of hesitations. And very quickly, we started to adopt what Suzanne, one of our student assistants who's been very dedicated to working on the podcast, calls the zero-er policy of zapping all kinds of hesitancies and repetitions so that the thing sounds really, really smooth. I think if we go back and listen to the first few episodes, we hadn't quite got there yet. But over time, we move towards what we hope is a more professional sounding experience where people feel that they are listening to something like a real radio program and not just a bunch of academics going on about stuff.
1: Uti, there's something I wanted to hear your opinion about, which was also something that Duncan mentioned now briefly, almost in passing, this idea of networking, collaborating with other institutions around a podcast. In this podcast, the Nordic dimension is quite explicit. This is, after all, the Nordic Asia podcast. Why did you feel that this Nordic scale, if one can use that term, was the appropriate or a useful scale for a collaborative podcast like this one?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Absolutely. I wonder how specific this kind of sub-regional collaboration is in Asian studies or in other academic fields, because in the Nordics, we have already for decades had this very vibrant collaboration among scholars in Asian studies. It's a kind of very natural and cozy community for us to work within. And for example, I'm myself in the field of Chinese studies. And just to give an example, I think since late 1980s, we have had these conferences that The Nordic Association for Chinese Studies arranges every second year, and it's a really important platform for especially young researchers, PhD researchers, to present their work and meet other scholars and have a kind of very informal and cozy environment to talk with other colleagues. And it has created a really, really intimate community in Nordic countries. I think it's quite specific. I wonder if you can find similar kind of uh, smaller regional communities like this elsewhere in the world. And of course, I have to add that NIAS is really an instrumental institute here. So NIAS is a very important node for this Nordic collaboration.
1: So is there a kind of a Nordic added value, if one can use that term, that's also useful when one does podcast productions?
0: I think so, yes. Obviously, the role of NIAS is to promote Asian studies across the Nordic region, and we have currently around about 24 members of the Nordic Nearest Council, which you know very well, Kenneth, since you currently chair it. So there's an incredible amount of expertise, but the problem with expertise on Asia in the Nordic region is it tends to be rather spread out amongst this 20-odd institutions with relatively few people working in each place. And we don't have a big annual gathering like the AAS conference in the US or something where all the different Asianists across the region come together. So we have to operate through a network. And a lot of the time, it's very difficult to know what people are doing in all of these different institutions and what kind of areas of work they're working on and what sort of expertise they have to comment and discuss recent events. So the great thing about the podcast is we're constantly able to showcase all that work that's going on. And we ourselves are learning a great deal about what our colleagues, sometimes even in the same institution, I may say, are actually up to. And you actually might be able to answer your own question better than us, Kenneth, because you've been doing an awful lot of podcasts that do, I would have thought, precisely that. You don't yourself work on, for example, China and Japan, but you're often hosting podcasts on those themes.
1: Even as a host, it's a great opportunity to broaden your own horizons and to venture into what your colleagues next are actually working on. I mean, people may not actually all that often speak across these Asian boundaries. It's not obvious why a South Asianist would be wanting to have a conversation with an East Asianist, for example. I think this podcast really helps in drawing people together across these boundaries, as Nias has been doing now for many, many decades. But I wanted just to dwell a little bit longer on this issue of designing and and doing a Nordic Asia podcast. Perhaps both Duncan and you, Uti, could comment on this. Isn't there a risk that we may lose potential listeners elsewhere in the world who might feel that a Nordic Asia podcast is something for people in the Nordic region and maybe not for scholars placed elsewhere in the world? Is there a kind of risk in this Nordic branding too?
2: I think this can be approached from many different angles. And the first question is, do the listeners look at the title of the podcast or how much do they pay attention to it? Is it mainly the contents of the episodes that draws attention and interest? Then of course, what does Nordic mean to people in other parts of the world? For example, in Africa, we talk about Nordics. What do they associate the term with? The same applies to the other parts of the world. So, of course, within the European context, Nordic is absolutely clear to everybody that it's, it's Northern Europe from Finland to Iceland. But then for other parts of the world, it might be maybe something exotic or maybe they pay attention to the Asia <laughs> in the podcast name.
0: It's a really interesting question. I think the proof of the pudding is in the eating so far. You know, we're trying not to get into too much self-congratulation. The fact is that we had... Over 300,000 downloads of the podcast in its second year of operations after we moved to be hosted by the US-based New Books Network. New Books Network, which isn't only about new books, has about 140-odd podcast channels at the moment. And last I checked, we were ranked about number 20 or 21 in terms of the number of unique users for our podcast, which is fairly amazing because we've only been there for just over a year, and many of those other podcasts have been around a very long time. I think what that speaks to is that actually the word Nordic has a very positive, cool connotation for people who are in North America or Canada, Australia, Asia, and other parts of the world. So, part of our successful branding is being able to make that claim about Nordicness and using that word in our title. But yes, as Audi says, we have no real way of knowing. To what extent people are downloading our podcasts because the Nordic Asia podcast has established a brand, to use that ghastly term, much favoured by university managers these days, and to what extent people are actually downloading it mainly on the basis of the exciting and intriguing titles and themes of the individual episodes. And that is really hard to know. But what we know is that we have a huge global audience, a lot of it in North America and the English-speaking world, but also increasing in Asia and other parts of Europe. And I'm sure that part of that is we are well edited and timely and topical podcasts, but we're also benefiting from the positive image that the Nordic region has in the rest of the world. And people are slightly intrigued by the idea of the Nordic Asia podcast. And silly though those jingles are, we have established that people know when they hear that tune coming on, what's coming up. It's another great episode of this podcast that's full of sometimes quirky, sometimes slightly different insights into Asia from the insights you'd get from your classic Anglo-American or a podcast that was based in some other part of the world. So I think it gives us an edge and a cachet. That's my theory. Until someone can prove that that's untrue, I'll continue to believe it.
1: And this goes back to something that you mentioned in the beginning, Duncan, the fact that with A podcast, one reaches far more people than one ever would with an academic article, not to mention an ordinary in-person academic seminar. Even thinking back to the early days of the series, an episode of the podcast in the early days would have maybe 100, 200 downloads, which is pretty much the same as what we would have for our big annual Nordic Asia conference that's organized on a rotational basis between the Nordic countries. A conference, which, by the way, costs quite a lot of money and requires many man hours compared to the kind of work that goes into a podcast. And now we've reached a stage where you say that each episode gets uh, thousands of downloads. So it's clear that in terms of knowledge dissemination, a podcast is really a wonderful instrument. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on the format, even though it's dialogical between the people who are sitting here having this nice conversation. It's also monological in the sense that we sit here, we talk to the listeners, but they can't talk back to us. And even though we try to have casual, improvised Mm -hmm. conversation, we, of course, prepare in advance and tend to script the things that we want to talk about. So I'm wondering, with this new urge or popularity of academic podcasts, is there a risk that this crucially important academic conversation kind of gets lost if there's a general what some people call podcastization of intellectual life. Is this a risk if we all turn to podcasts? Do we lose the conversation?
0: That's a new word for me. I have to make a note of that. I got to admit, I don't give the guests the questions. I mention to them a few things that might come up, but I completely refuse to give the guests the questions. And that's part of the approach that most of the nearest generated podcasts take. So that might be a, a slight difference of emphasis, but I don't think it changes the fundamental import of your question. No, I mean, obviously, I mean, I've in the past sometimes written things for newspapers. And if I really wanted to reach a mass audience, I would be spending my time writing articles for The Guardian Online or something instead of writing academic articles. If you're just pursuing numbers, right, if the only thing that matters is to get that 300,000 downloads up to half a million for next year, then we would just be concentrating on the most topical issues, the things that we think could possibly generate interest. And we know that anything with China, anything with environment, anything with China clashing with other parts of the world, for example, is going to get far more downloads, sadly, than your classic South Asia or Southeast Asia single country focused podcast. So we could steer everything to just boosting the ratings. And that would be obviously completely betraying ourselves as academics who are committed to doing serious work. I'm sometimes guilty of it. You know, I quite often send out these reports about just how many downloads we have and which episodes are doing best. And I'm at the edge of my seat sometimes waiting for the end of the month to to see, have we managed to beat last month's total? And perhaps I am slightly losing my mind with all that stuff. But don't forget that with most academic work, I publish an academic article. Five years later, I can go onto Google Scholar and see if anyone's actually cited it yet. We don't get a lot of instant (laughs) response to our conventional academic work either. So that's one reply to your question. But yes, it would be great if we had more of a dialogue element, if we could somehow encourage the listeners to respond. We do get some emails and communications from people, and we know that they are listening, they are out there. But how to build in a feedback loop into podcasting is clearly something that New Books Network, which we're on, hasn't been able to do. (laughs) So I can't see a shining example of another academic podcast that's done it yet. But maybe that's another direction to go? How can we engage the audience in what's happening more?
1: Ulti?
2: Yeah, I have an idea exactly on these dialogue aspects. So maybe we could have a format with a small number of episodes on specific topic, say that's three, four episodes. And then listeners can leave comments and questions on the text field on the podcast page, and then after the mini-series is published, so we can get together back with the guests of the episodes and then comment and discuss the feedback that we have received from the listeners. So maybe this could be one way to increase the interaction with our listeners. Maybe something to test in the future.
0: If anyone listening to this podcast has any ideas about how they would like to engage with it, please email us at info at dk <laughs> yeah. with any suggestions.
1: Julie, when we sat down to prepare for this this conversation, you told me that you had been using some of these podcasts in your teaching, something which I have not done myself, but I know that colleagues of mine are trying to do the same thing. And you teach courses related to Chinese politics. Could you let us in a bit more on precisely how one can integrate podcasts into teaching, but also assessment of student performance?
3: Yes, in fact, I think my answer is kind of in response to your question, how to make this more interactive and not just monological. So what I do is I will always look at certain situations. For instance, one of my podcasts was about the so-called 228 incident in Taiwan. So there was a massacre of a Chinese army on Taiwanese protesters in 1947. So I asked my student to listen to this podcast, and it is a very interesting podcast because of the author himself, was in fact a victim of this government crackdown. So it's very powerful and touching. And in addition to that, I will ask students to read the author's book. And then in the end, we invited the author of this particular book and in this podcast series to meet my students separately to have a further discussion. So I use situational teaching, adding layers of contemporary issue or important historical moments and combining my podcast to teaching. Another example I have is maybe some of you remember last year, there was a big scandal in China about a famous Chinese tennis star. And she came out to say that she has been sexually harassed by high-level politicians. So I combined this with academic reading of Me Too movement in China and the feminist movement in China, and then asking students to listen to the podcast and give their feedback directly in class. And sometimes I also design quizzes, very simple quizzes, kind of on, on Moodle. This is the platform that we use in the university. So students have the chance to really listen perhaps even more than once of the podcast and then answer the question in a quiz. I don't just do it to increase the download rate of my episode. Of course, it serves that purpose. But it's also for students to think once and twice more carefully what has been delivered in each episode.
1: As Duncan mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, one trademark quality of these episodes is that they are short and sharp. And that means that we are approaching the end of the road of this conversation about the Nordic Asia podcast. Lastly, now all of you looking back over the past two years, and I think more than 100 episodes of this podcast, and I know you probably haven't listened to all of them, but you must have listened to quite a good deal of them. What's been the highlights of this series so far, it's Uti.
2: It's really difficult to pick one of the best episode of all because, I mean, there are so fantastic episodes in our series. But I could maybe mention, Kenneth, your India podcast because our podcasts have been a really good way for me to learn more about Asia and beyond China. So I have enjoyed a lot your discussions with India specialists. It has been an important way for me to know more about India, which is a very important part of the global affairs nowadays. Thanks
1: for that. Well, thank you so much for these kind words, Uti. Duncan, your highlights
0: of the series? No, it's really hard because I have listened to almost all of them and I love so many of the episodes. Look, I've been incredibly delighted by the couple of episodes so far that my master student Amber Vortman did based on being an official election observer in Timor-Leste. There's one where I'm interviewing her and you can hear the birds in the background and the motorbikes going past, sort of actually being there. And then another one, she did an exclusive interview with the newly inaugurated president of Timor-Leste, Jose Ramos Horta. Those were particularly enjoyable ones for me, but there are so many others I could mention. I do like the idea of taking the podcast out to the field. We haven't been doing that very much because we've been kind of stuck here, but maybe as travel becomes easier, we can do more podcasts from the field again.
1: Julie?
3: Yes, sorry for self-promotion, but I think the podcast I mentioned about this Chinese suppression of citizens in Taiwan, that episode had a lot of downloads, and I can understand why, because I think it is a very emotional episode where the academic scholar talked about himself being, in fact, a victim of this history, but then he turned out to write a book about the Chinese people. He thinks that, in fact, they are the victims of history themselves. So those people who have been inflicting pain on his family, in fact, were victims of history, and they had to flee the war in China and become some sort of refugees in Taiwan. So I love that episode itself, because it's not just intellectual, it's also emotional and very personal.
1: Julie Yu Wenchen, Wutiluova, and Duncan McCargo. Thank you all so much for these insights into the work that's gone into the making of the Nordic Asia podcast so far. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.